and welcome to episode 67 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Over the last few years, Pluto has developed a perhaps unexpected thread in the larger tapestry of our publishing, with a number of books on sport and books on the history and politics of football in particular. St. Pauli, Another Football is Possible by Carlos Vinyas and Nacho Parra, Football in the Land of the Soviets, also by Carlos Vinyas, and now A People's History of Football by Mikhail Correa, or if you're listening from the US, the book is published in the States as A People's History of Soccer. To read from the blurb briefly, from England, France and Germany to Palestine, South Africa and Brazil, a people's history of football reveals how the beautiful game has been a powerful instrument of emancipation for workers, feminists, anti-colonial activists, young people and protesters around the world. It felt strange producing an episode about sport amidst the horror and destruction that's being wrought in Gaza. Our next episode will quite rightly focus on this much more closely. But it should perhaps not come as so much of a surprise after all that discussing the politics of football inevitably brought back much of this episode's conversation to Palestine and the international response by fans and clubs around the world. Football has often found itself at the heart of anti-colonial struggles, a tool of repression and co-optation as well as liberation and resistance. This has certainly been true of football in Palestine and Israel, something which is covered in the book we're going to be talking about on the show today. A People's History of Football by Mikhail Correa was published in French in 2018. The English language edition is out now from Pluto, translated by Fion Petch. We're joined on the panel today by Fion, as well as Kevin Blow from Clapton CFC, a North London community-owned football club, and Andy Gitlitz, author of the Pluto cult classic I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs and Apocalypse Communism. We talk about the early origins of football in feudal Britain, its role in the formation of working-class identity, the repression and resurgence of women's football, as well as the unique trajectory of soccer in the US. We also talk about the emergence over the last few years of fan-owned clubs like Clapton CFC. A People's History of Football, along with a number of our other books on football and sport, are all 40% off for listeners of Radicals and Conversation. Browse the list at plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. Simply use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout. So without further ado, this is Fionn Petch, Kevin Blow and Andy Gitlitz on Radicals and Conversation. Firstly, I want to just thank you all very much for taking the time to be here on the show today. It's, yeah, really exciting to have so many people in the room to talk about people's history of football and the politics of sport and football, I guess, more generally, or soccer, if you're listening in the US. Um, if you could all introduce yourselves, say who you are, why you're sort of here on this call today, why you have an interest in this subject. So maybe we can start with you, Fionn, as the translator of A People's History of Football. Hi there. Um, my name is Fionn Petch. I translated uh, Mikhail Correa's uh, People's History of Football. I was born in Scotland and lived in Latin America a lot of my life. I lived in Mexico for 10 years and for the last uh, seven, eight years I've been living in Berlin. I translate from Spanish mainly and from French and Italian less frequently. Cool. That's great. Thanks, Fionn. Kevin, let's go to you next. Tell us a little about yourself. My name is Kevin Blow. I live in East London. 
stone's throw away from the old West Ham ground in Upton Park. And I'm one of the people that was a founder member of Clapton Community Football Club, which is based in Forest Gate, and have been centrally involved in the organisation of that since it became a members-run football club in 2018. That's great. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, And lastly, Andy, listeners may well be aware of your excellent book, I Want to Believe, which came out with Pluto a couple of years ago. Uh, But tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you're working on now. I'm currently writing a new book about the history of baseball in general, but uh, especially in New York and especially the New York Mets. It's called Metropolitans. It should be out in 2025 on Astra House Press. And it's sort of a Marxist history of baseball. And in writing it, I've done a lot of work researching other sports, comparing them to baseball, how they work structurally, how they work as a business. So I've read quite a bit about the, the history of soccer. Also, I'm part of an autonomous space in Ridgewood, Queens called Woodbine, and we recently wrote collaboratively an essay for our new journal, Reservoir, about our soccer team at Woodbine and our autonomous soccer league that we started. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Andy. I mean, yeah, we'll definitely touch on the autonomous soccer league in Queens and the Mets as well. Um, Why not? Maybe in a little bit. So I guess firstly, like a general question. Why do you think people love this sport? Why do people love football or soccer? What makes it so attractive? And if you yourselves consider yourselves to be fans, then what is it about the game that you love? I'll happily go first. For a lot of years, football wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed watching it on the telly, but actually going to games had become something that I'd stopped enjoying. The sense of the weekend and coming together and just, that kind of emotional release that you get from sport. And in particular, I think with football, just the fact that it is such an enormous part of so many people's lives had slightly been, well, significantly been been twisted by the fact that it was also somewhere that was incredibly racist and incredibly homophobic and incredibly sexist, and which was increasingly restricted by excessive stewarding, heavy-handed policing. It had largely stopped being fun. And I think one of the reasons why fan-owned football, which we'll come on to later, but also non-league football, so football that doesn't involve stupid amounts of money and players being paid enormous sums, community-based football, is the idea that you recapture some of what we, some of us remember when we first went to football matches. So, I mean, the first game I ever went to in the 70s, when I was very young, was the old fourth division, where there were still 50,000 people at Fratton Park in Portsmouth. And just the sort of the roar of the crowd and the surge of when goals were scored was incredibly, you know, impressionable on somebody who was about six at the time. And obviously I wasn't aware of just potentially how much of a danger I was in at the time either. But I mean, that's that's by the by. I think that idea of it being one of the few remaining collective ways of coming together and by and large not being really tightly controlled you know not just having all your activities very very parceled up is the importance of football in you know compared to other sports but just the sheer fact that there is a common language between so many people about going to watch football regardless of what team they might support I think that probably means that when you end up at a community club like I did it doesn't matter that most of the people that I'm with also support other teams we kind of know Uh, the basis of what being a football supporter involves. 
I think that's probably why I've continued to be involved in supporting a football club, even though it's not one of the ones that has millionaire owners and shed loads of money and all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else thoughts on this? I have to confess that I, I've not been a sort of lifelong football fan or followed a team for a long time. I've only ever watched a few games live in my life. I watched um, a game at the Azteca Stadium in Mexico City when I when I lived there. For me, the strongest memories I have of, of football are from my childhood, from my youth. I grew up in Stirling, a small town in central Scotland. And I went to you know, football training when I was a kind of young teen and uh, have strong kind of memories of going to training there in middle of winter, freezing in the uh, stadium of Stirling Albion, which I don't know if it was new at the time, but for me, it was something very fancy that they, they had just laid AstroTurf. Um, but also something that I, having translated this book, has kind of taken on new relevance for me was that typically we would play football after school just around the corner from my my house where there was a a nice broad flat square uh, to play in so we had sort of jumpers for goalposts type football and i lived in what you might call the deuce part of sterling the nicer end of town and just for those after school games uh, the kids would come down from the top of the town as it was called which was the rougher end of town, and we'd all play together. You know, we'd all line up. Two captains would pick the players for each team from that lineup, and that feeling of sort of you know the, the pecking order being established by you know how long you have to wait until they, they pick you. Uh, I think that's stayed with me as well. But there there was something about the coming together of the the different ends of the towns, the different communities, which you know at other times were at war with each other and. You know, if we went up into their territory on a Friday night, we would expect to get beaten up and so on. And but for for the football games, rivalries were set aside. Yeah, thanks, Fionn. And Andy, how about you? I mean, you've mentioned already this autonomous league in Queens in New York. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, what's your involvement been in that as it as a player or a fan or yeah, say a little more. Yeah, so I haven't played much soccer. I, I mean, I, I played a couple of pickup games in the last couple of years, and I'm really, really bad at it. I have a tendency to kick the ball the opposite direction I'm trying to kick it. I don't know how I do that. But uh, yeah, I played baseball as a kid, and I would occasionally find some pickup games. But normally, baseball, just because I think you need a specific field and specific equipment, a certain size team and all that. There's just a lot more barrier for entry for people to play it. And as I've gotten older, you know, I found that in urban settings, you can not only play pickup soccer a lot easier, but a very diverse group of people are drawn in to play pickup soccer games. Like, for instance, I played like an anarchist soccer game in, in Oakland and just many different kinds of people from around that park would come in and play. We found the same thing here in Ridgewood, Queens, where now our sort of autonomous soccer league is attracting a lot of asylum seekers. We play together and they uh, happen to be much better than us, but you know, we, you know, there's a, a learning curve there. So there's sort of a collaborative uh, teaching and learning that goes on there. And so I think a point that's made uh, in the book is that um, and also in the there's a, another great book from Pluto called St. Pauli and Other Football is Possible 
that makes this point that it's just it's a more proletarian game because all you need is the ball and uh, a few people to play it and you can just sort of make the goal itself you just need the field and the ball and so i do think that soccer is that's why you see it played pretty much everywhere by all different kinds of people around the world which makes it a very different kind of sport than baseball or cricket or football or hockey that you need a, a it's a higher barrier of entry Mm, yeah, no, that's definitely true. It feels like football is, in a very sort of rudimentary sense, a more democratic game. That barrier to entry is lower. I love reading history books, and, and this was no exception. But, like, it's interesting that football or soccer, you know, didn't make inroads in the US back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the way that it did in much of the rest of the world at that time. And I suppose one consideration as to why that might be the case is, you know, the roots by which this new sport was spread. You know, they were, I guess, kind of colonial. Um, it was an export of empire. But perhaps by that point in history, Americans had created or evolved their own domestic sports. You know, you've already mentioned baseball, American football as well. If soccer has a U.S. equivalent in the sense of its mass popular appeal, a game that is perhaps played by people as much as is watched, what would that be? Yeah, so in the United States, baseball had established itself as the spectator sport from the Civil War, basically, you know, the 1860s, 70s. And soccer was played largely by immigrants, not really as a spectator sport. There were a few amateur leagues. The big attempt to make it a major spectator sport was in the late 1960s and 70s with the NASL most famously the Cosmos and, and Pele came into play. And you had basically stadiums being sold out to watch Pele. But then the, it sort of went away until recent times with the MLS. And my theory about why soccer never caught on or maybe it's catching on now is because, and I think that the book really helped me understand this, is that there is a kind of feudal roots to soccer. It's like a semi-feudal game. It's, it's very rooted in locality in place, in the land, the fields, the commons. And the United States has done a lot through its settler colonial history of trying to eradicate that. So instead of having this common field or pitch, you get this neatly manicured lawn. That's the baseball field. And it's like this sort of microcosm of the ideal American society of this like tight knit diamond that's like the town and then the, these fields, that's the outfield. Uh, I think there's something very psychological in the fact that Americans have a hard time identifying with soccer. And I think that's really expressed in the fact that we don't have the same kind of supporter culture for uh, American football or baseball, where you have these kind of hooligan gangs or like supporter sections fighting each other, traveling. You have that a little bit, but it's just simply not with the same intensity that you get in Europe or Latin America or anywhere else in the world. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And we can, I guess, talk about like the ultras and the the fans in a bit. Just to kind of dwell on that history, I mean, you mentioned its feudal origins, like, I guess, folk football or a sort of proto a sort of early types of the game existed as far back as the 14th century. You know, that's kind of, you know, 100 years war plague kind of era. Um, and it was this kind of community affair. It was very much tied to villages, the land, the people that lived there. And, you know, reading about this kind of history in the book, you also kind of get the sense that it was an incredibly violent game a lot of the time and used as a forum for sort of meeting out popular justice and even as like an insurrectionary catalyst. Um, 
I think, you know, in the book it mentions that football was used as a way of organising like direct actions against enclosure or drainage works in the fens and so on in East Anglia. So it's really interesting to note how the history of the game and the development, I guess, of the rules of the modern game kind of runs in parallel with the emergence of the state in the early modern era, the you know privatisation and enclosure of the land and the Industrial Revolution. I mean, do you, Andy, or Fionn, or Kevin, if you've read that bit of the book, want to sort of say a bit more about some of this early history? Because it really is fascinating. My understanding of the history and development of football, at least in Britain, is that there were two strands of it. So there was undoubtedly the, what you might call posh football, the people that actually ended up writing the original rules of the game, right? And which was closely identified with amateurism, I have to say, with the idea that it was a sport of amateurs and gentlemen, if you like. And then the teams that went on to form the first football league, which were predominantly from working class communities in the north of England, who were the first to embrace payment for players, in part because most of the people that were playing were absolutely dirt poor. They were working in factories and so on. But the crucial thing is the identification of teams with communities, which I think we've already touched on. A lot of the big grounds are right in smack bang in the middle of cities. If you think about some of the oldest grounds in England, uh, and they were an inherent part of the culture of working class communities. I have to say male working class communities, I should add, right? But it was the pub and the football. I think part of the reason why it grew is because it was the outlet at the weekend. It was the thing you went to at the weekend, usually very cheap to go to, and was somewhere where all the people that you work with were likely to be. Certainly in, although the development of football has changed throughout the world, but certainly in Britain, the roots are absolutely working class roots. There's no question about that at all. And... I mean, I think that probably continued well into the late the late eighties, and certainly until the creation of the Premier League in England, which really transformed that football. But I mean, I remember going to football in the seventies and eighties, and it being essentially largely male and mainly working class, and mainly people who lived in that area, in the area immediately around the ground. And it's remarkable that that sustained itself throughout the peaks and troughs of different strengths of working class communities particularly the massive decimation of those communities from the early 1980s onwards under Thatcher, that there was that class identity that was as much a part of being a Liverpool fan or a Manchester United fan or whatever, certainly where I live for being a West Ham fan, which also reflected not just the best aspects of those communities, but also the worst. I touched on the beginning that a number of those clubs had, were incredibly racist, uh, were breeding grounds for the far right, but all they were really doing was reflecting something that existed beyond the gates of the stadium where people were attending. So I don't know what, why that therefore didn't translate into the same situation elsewhere, but I guess the development of football is going to be different depending on the economic and social circumstances of each particular country. So going back to what you were saying about the earliest origins of, of football as, as folk football, I thought it was, it was really interesting to learn through Mikhail's book how you know, there were different versions of ball games in many European countries and indeed further afield. So there was you know, folk football or mob football in, in England uh, and Scotland. And there was soul in France. And in Italy, there was calcio, which is what much later on Mussolini tried to 
call the game again in the 30s and kind of claim Italian origins for it. But the, these were all very sort of wild games with very few rules to them. Or each village, each county had its had its own rules. It could have been about uh, taking the ball from one village to another. The ball had to be put through the door of a particular pub. And they could have been, you know, they were played by sometimes hundreds of players at a time. And as you say, they were very much a threat to the hierarchy. And they were seen as um, a source of yeah, rebellion and criminality. I guess it's interesting to, to ask why it was in Britain or in England specifically that it became codified, whether it was to do with the specific culture of private schools, that these you know different forms of ball games, and obviously different games did come out of that codification because we got rugby as well. But whether it was that English culture of, of elite schools and, as you were saying, Kevin, about you know, the gentleman's game that led to football as we know it. And then what I also thought was really interesting while translating the book was realizing how that sort of origin in the high and the low has been there from the start. And so as soon as it was codified, the rules of association football were laid down. It sort of expanded massively back into the into the working classes. You can sort of follow its history through trade union struggle as well. So, for example, the idea of getting Saturday as a half day off work was tied up with being able to watch the match on the Saturday afternoon, right? So the, it's it's this kind of constant back and forth between the working classes kind of claiming space for themselves for recreation, but also a kind of paternalistic response where they're being put in their place. And so the, the factory owners sort of realized that it would be a good thing for the workers to be going to a game on the Saturday afternoon because it would be keep, keeping them out of trouble. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's something that's really quite interesting to read in the book is like, it's a contested sort of terrain, isn't it? And always has been right since the the beginning the sport has already always been seen as like a way of instilling discipline and obedience among a workforce, for instance, which is why a lot of these clubs originate out of the industrial sector. You know, companies would set up teams and so on. And there was this kind of very sort of patrician outlook from the company owners, you know, as a means of controlling their workers and turning them away from social struggle, I guess. Uh, and I suppose that another kind of reasons teams were set up was by the church, right, as a way of kind of keeping people on the straight and narrow as well, keeping them out of the pub. So there has always been this um, top-down imposition. But then, you know, the game takes on a life of its own and, and very much is about consolidating working-class consciousness and identity right from the outset. The author writes in the book that, you know, the history of football is one of continuous recovery and reinvention. And I think you see that right from the beginning. Well, Fionn Singh is your, here as the translator of the book. It, it would be remiss if we didn't ask you some questions about translation and, and what it was like working on this project, making sure that the text, I guess, makes sense in different cultural contexts for, for a different audience. So, yeah, I was just wondering, how does cultural translatability come into play in a book like this? You know, is it more challenging working on fiction, which I know you do as well? How was it to work on this particular project? Yeah, it was not a super challenging book to to translate. I'd say, like you mentioned, I, I translate uh, fiction, particularly from Spanish, and all kinds of questions can come up. You know, they vary from book to book. Every book can throw up its own unique problems. In this case, one of the things was the style. I, I guess 
obviously Michael Correa is, is writing in French for for a French audience, and I think I did do some light editing on the length of the sentences and number of clauses and subclauses. That's just to do with the expectations of uh, French and English speaking readers, really. For this type of book, um, French readers are perhaps used to uh, a more verbose way of presenting things, perhaps. And also, because he was writing for uh, a French audience, there were some references, uh, some like, additional information for French readers that I decided wasn't really necessary for uh, English speaking readers, especially readers in the UK. He would say, Liverpool, a working class city in the north of England, which I decided was not really necessary for uh, English speaking readers. And conversely, there were some references that he made to uh, French historical figures, politicians, players who he assumed that his readers would know about. And so in those cases, I would add in a little extra bit of information uh, for English speaking readers. In the end, football is universal, isn't it? So those sort of problems were were really very few. And overall, it was it was a joy to translate. He writes very clearly. You know, th- these are sort of twenty two chapters from all over the world, throughout the history of football, and he just lets the story speak for itself, really. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. Okay, so Andy, I guess I'll come to you next. You provided an endorsement for this book. And I think there's a couple of things in there that it might be nice to sort of pick up on. So, you know, firstly, you write, and you've touched on this already to, to an extent, but you, you write that with the rise of popularity of the MLS in the United States, America's historically apolitical sports culture has been suddenly ruptured with the protests and TIFOs of dozens of radical left fan clubs. I was wondering if you could speak to this a little bit and maybe for the uninitiated explain what the MLS is. Uh, and what TIFOs are as well, because they're a huge part of fan culture around the world, but um, people may not be familiar with the term, if I'm even pronouncing it right, which is another question. I certainly don't know how to pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, um, but they're, yeah, they're these large displays or banners that are fan-made, often smuggled in somehow past security. And it speaks to a grassroots culture that we've barely had in the United States, but super common in Latin America and Europe. And it's it's no coincidence that we're seeing it now with the rise of MLS, because a lot of the fan clubs that are coming to support MLS teams are led by Latin American and European expats. And so as MLS has become more popular, when it began, it became so popular, I guess, in the, the 2000s, 2010s, you started to see European and Latin American style fan clubs emerge most of them were not political, but some of them had the political overtones of like FC St. Pauli or, you know, tried to imitate some of the culture of the Premier League in the UK. And there began these kind of alliances between different FCs and other kind of international FC constellations. And they began to imitate what they saw in Latin America and Europe. So, for example, in New York, there is a really interesting situation where you have the Red Bulls, formerly the Metro Stars, which play in New Jersey, just outside of New York City, the Cosmos, who were sort of brought back as the, the historic New York team of Pele, and New York City FC, which was funded by by Saudis and the New York Yankees and, and Manchester United. And so soccer fans in New York kind of chose their alliances based on these three more or less newly minted teams. And FC became 
more or less the team of apolitical people and more fascist or right wing leaning football fans. Whereas Cosmos became like the very anti-fascist team of St. Pauli fans and Celtics fans. And then you had sort of the Red Bulls caught in between as like the more traditional team because they were a little bit older uh, from the Metro Stars days, but tended to be more of a left wing or, or casual fan base. And there began to be this like pretty important political struggle between the three teams and within the stands of the three teams uh, where New York City FC games suddenly had like open fascists and Proud Boys in the stands and Cosmos games were totally overtaken by anti-fascists with like very political slogans and there was fights in the streets of New Jersey outside the Red Bull games. Things that you haven't really seen in U.S. sports culture, you'd see like little fights between Yankees and Red Sox fans or something like that, but nothing too serious. And the MLS, you know, did their best to try to control this not by like choosing one side over another or by banning fascists from the stands or anything like that, but just trying to ban political messaging in general. And they totally failed. So now at several MLS stadiums uh, across the country, it's it's really common that you'll see huge TIFOs. I'm not sure if there's been any supporting uh, Palestine recently. I'm sure there has been or will be. But you see a lot against fascism, against Cop City, for example, the Atlanta team had a big TIFO about Cop City. And yeah, so like, especially from the baseball tradition, the idea has always been in U.S. sports culture to be as apolitical as possible. And I think largely because of the expat fans, but maybe something about the sport itself, they've totally failed in the MLS. MLS is a very politically charged uh, atmosphere. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. Because, I mean, you mentioned when you were kind of telling us a little bit about yourself that you're working on this new book on the New York Mets baseball team, uh, people's history of that club. Are there any crossovers there in terms of, you know, a political radicalism within the sport, I guess? Like I said, baseball had always been extremely apolitical. Probably the most political event in modern baseball was the breaking of the color barrier with Jackie Robinson, which happened in Brooklyn with the Dodgers. And that made the Dodgers a very political team. If you were at all sympathetic to the cause of black people in the United States, you became something of a Dodgers fan. Meanwhile, the American League and the Yankees resisted integration for a really long time. So this is a very long story, obviously, but when the Dodgers and the the Giants left New York in 1957, leaving only the Yankees as the only baseball team, it left just millions of baseball fans in New York sort of homeless. And the Mets kind of uh, were brought in in 1962 as a combination of those teams to try to bring that demographic back. And so the result of that was the Mets were a team sort of branded for the left, and they were embraced by the emerging new left of the of the 1960s. And the fan culture really represented that and the fact that it was extremely self-expressive and loud and boisterous, and they would stormed the field when they when they won big games in 1969. But what's really fascinating to me is that they were fans of a really bad team. Between 1962 and 1967, they were one of the worst teams in the history of baseball, but people loved them nonetheless. And I think that there's something about the Mets during those years that really resonated with young leftists. It, was, it wasn't just about them being this historical team of, of Jackie Robinson or, or something like that or the rebranding of that, but it was that they, they showed that 
sports in general wasn't about winning or losing or business. It was it was about fun and bringing people together and identity, and that rejuvenated baseball in general. And baseball teams imitated so many things the Mets and the Mets fans were doing. The Mets had the first mascot, Mr. Met. Mets fans were bringing signs to games in a kind of an unprecedented way and storming the field and, you know, things like this that sort of brought the game into a new era. Yeah. I mean, you know, anyone that's even doesn't follow the game really, but was kind of vaguely aware, I suppose, of the recent World Cup in Qatar will will know that the game is kind of haunted by corruption um, and at a certain level, that sort of top flight level in particularly, it feels kind of grossly tainted by the forces and the logic of capital. And we know that, you know, neoliberalism is a huge driver of atomization in society as well. But it seems that there's something about football that sort of cannot be decollectivized um, that is inherently sort of generous in spite of all this. Well, I think, uh, at least in my study of, of baseball, there's always been buying and selling of players from different places, whereas in a lot of the traditional football teams drew from their locality. And that seemed to be the case for even a lot of professional football's history until pretty recently, until the 70s or so, when you really start to have teams being made up of players bought from around the world or even like naturalized as citizens to, to the point where, you know, in baseball, there's a saying that you, you don't root for the team, you root for the uniform. And soccer resisted that for a long time. But now you're getting to the point where the, the team and the place that they're from have a lot less to do with each other. But I think soccer has resisted that because fans of soccer tend to play soccer in a way that fans of baseball don't necessarily play baseball. Baseball is mostly played by kids in the United States um, in organized leagues, uh, in middle school and in high school. And then when you get older, maybe you play softball in a beer league. But I think soccer, playing it is way more ingrained into the fan culture. So whatever the team is becomes way less important to the point when some of the soccer games I've seen in the U.S., people don't even seem to really be paying attention to the game very much. It's more about the cheers and the togetherness and the music and the, the stands culture. Mm. It would be quite interesting to talk about Palestine a little bit. I mean, Andy was talking about the fan culture in the stands in the, the MLS um, and wondering whether we're seeing the sort of TIFOs in support of Palestinian liberation and so on. But it's certainly true that not just this last month, but for many years, you know, you've seen supporters of Palestinian liberation in football stands. Um, I mean, a couple of days ago, I think supporters of Real Sociedad made some sort of art installation kind of statement expressing support for Palestinian people in the stands. Celtic's Green Brigade, uh, you know, have long sort of expressed their support, hanging banners in the stands as well. Um, and I know there must be countless examples around the world at the moment. This is, I guess, one of the reasons why I kind of reached out to Clapton CFC in the first place because, you know, I saw a statement on the website explaining the club's position vis-a-vis -vis Palestinian solidarity. So could you say a little bit about some of the club's ethos? You know, why is it kind of intervening in a sort of political space as a community club? Why is that important to the people in the club? Well, it's partly to do with the origins of the club. So we play at a very low level, let's be honest. Significant number of divisions below the Premier League in pubs that are in in the main or maybe get 
if they're lucky, 40 or 50 people attending the games. And we don't. We get hundreds of people turning up. And part of this is about the background to how the club started. So originally we had been supporters of another Clapton football club. What had happened is a number of people who'd become disillusioned with clubs that are going to the games of the teams that they supported, whether it's Spurs or West Ham or Lake Norian or Arsenal or whatever it might be, had started to pop along to this local side in Forest Gate because it was near where they lived. Because it had everything that those other clubs didn't have, which was no cops, you could have a beer and you could stand with your mates. And the football may be of sometimes questionable value, but it was about bringing people together. And that's how I first got involved. The people that started it were also people who deliberately chosen something new because of their rejection of, as I mentioned before, some of the deeply ingrained racism within football and the association of football fans with the far right. And had been actively involved in anti-fascist politics, which has got a big, there's a big strand of that throughout East London, as well as this reputation for being a, a base for, you know, for Nazis, basically, right? And so what happened was a fans group grew out of a club that really didn't have any fans before, that originally and somewhat ironically had referred to themselves as the Clapton Ultras, because that was just ridiculous in a team of that size, right? But then, of course, London is a incredibly lonely and isolating city, so and people pitch up from all over the world. And I guess the name kind of helped to bring in all these people who came from a an ultras culture, particularly loads of people from Italy, right? Um, but also people from Poland and Spain, and also brought with them and reinforced that existing strand of, of commitment to anti-fascist politics. It has to be said that some of that was also reinforced with actual clashes with the far right. So, you know, we went to a game, a bunch of people who had essentially retired people from the Chelsea Headhunters, a very far right group, turned up to kick off, right? didn't get any support from our club, but we did get support from anti-fascists all over Europe. And so when the decision finally came of the parting of the ways with that club by the supporters, by which time there were like 800, 900,000 people attending the games to set up what I guess you would call a breakaway club, uh, Clapton Community FC, we took those politics with us, right? It was never a question of it just setting up a club. It was a political football club right from the start. And that was reflected in the decision of a vote that was taken by members to adopt a, an away shirt that was a tribute to people from East London who'd, who'd gone to Spain to fight against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. That amazing, beautiful shirt that was designed subsequently became a viral phenomenon that made so much money from people buying it in Spain that we were able to buy our ground. And so I think there's a thread that goes all the way back to the beginning. It wasn't like a group of fans came along and adopted the politics. The politics was absolutely behind the commitment to start the club, the Clapton Community Football Club in the first place, right? So when you get to the issue of Palestine, if you have what I think are not only a, a commitment to fighting racism and fighting fascism and homophobia and sexism and so on, then you are forced into a position of making a choice about not just those issues on your doorstep, but the issues around the world. Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating that the name of FC San Paoli has popped up a couple of times in this discussion, because FC San Paoli is also a club that's long associated themselves with opposition to racism, sexism and homophobia. And yet 
in recent weeks, after you know rightly condemning the Hamas massacre of, of Israeli civilians, most of whom, in a cruel irony, were actually lifelong campaigners for peace and reconciliation, Sam Paoli and its supporters have not just said nothing about the mounting evidence of, uh, of war crimes, ethnic cleansing, evidence of genocide, but they've also actively supported and defended the state responsible for those crimes. I think the problem with that is that they were asked to have expressed some understanding of racism beyond sort of a, a liberal notion of you know, racism that is bad, fascists are evil. You know, having some recognition of racism as a system of segregation, discrimination, violence, culminating in apartheid. And it turns out that their anti-racism was basically millimetres deep. And that's a problem because I think, you know, for, for us as a club, we see Palestinian suffering as being a challenge in particular for everybody in Europe, right? Because the Palestinian Nakba and the Jewish Holocaust are essentially intrinsically linked, by which I mean there would have been no Nakba without the Zionist project in Israel, and there would have been no Zionist project in Israel without the centuries of European anti-Semitism and without the racist theories of European colonialism that the Nazis had embraced and admired, right? So... As the Palestinian academic Edward Said said that the Palestinians were the victims of victims, the refugees of the refugees. I think that's absolutely true. Why particularly Germany? I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. I live in a country which has absolutely failed to come to terms with its imperial past, right? So we have this ludicrous situation where statues of dead racists basically have better protection than children living in poverty. That's the extent of that failure to embrace Britain's history. Um, but he's not alone in that. And I think one of the things that I remember first hearing around the left's attitude to Bosnia and Herzegovina was that the real lesson of the Holocaust was never again. It was a universal commitment, never again for anybody. And yet leftist fans in Germany in particular have been prepared to say that it's OK for Palestinians to pay the price for Europe's racist legacy and their own country's particular guilt. And I think he's absolutely right. The supporters of FC San Paolo in particular have called out that hypocrisy, whether it's, you know, fan groups in Glasgow, in Balbao, in Athens. And it's then incumbent on those of us who have a different idea of why we are anti-racists to be able to say if we're opposed to the far right on our doorstep, we have to be opposed to the far right wherever that might be. And that includes Israel, right? That includes the apartheid state of Israel. And we appreciate the fact that not many clubs are going to do that. Right, because the idea of politics and sport not mixing, which is an absolute nonsense, of course, is something that is a, a common kind of idea that's pushed. That's not possible for our club. The politics was a foundational element of why we set up. And football in, in relation to the wider boycott, disinvestment and sanctions movement is also important as well, right? Because there's a cultural cachet associated with football and an element of one of the calls from that from the Palestinian non-violent civil disobedience movement is for the boycott of humour and that's something that we've adopted as as part of our club so that's quite a long explanation I guess of why it is that we have felt it was so important to take a stand on Palestine uh, we see it as being something which is absolutely in keeping with the idea that Racism is not just a question of being opposed to prejudice. It's against the systemic discrimination and violence of the state. In this particular instance, the Israeli state.
you mind if I jump in there? And to, just to defend St. Pauli a little bit, I think that there's going to be a big split, and there has been a split between its international supporters and its German supporters. And uh, I've I've heard a little bit of a rumor about this. I'm not. I don't want to like try to represent it too much, but for example, there's a St. Pauli supporters group in New York, and a lot of them are German, a lot of them aren't, a lot of them are Latin American, and there's a certainly pro-Palestinians. I think on both sides of that in the international supporters group. So I think with how atrocious the barbarism in Gaza is, it's going to force a lot of people to think about that conflict in a new way. And I would just hope that, you know, the reasons you alluded to Germans, even leftist Germans being really slow to recognize that conflict for what it is, maybe there will be a reckoning and St. Pauli, at least because it's such a politicized team, that actually has political structures built into the governance of the team to some extent will be a grounds for that reckoning to happen. Maybe that's too optimistic, but I just want to put out there that it's not so simple to just say St. Pauli's on the, the wrong side of this or, or will continue to be. And that's a possibility, but I think there is a difference between the attitude of many of the support, international supporters group and a particular strand of the German left, the so-called anti-Deutsch position that's adopted, which is essentially that Israel gets a pass because of a collective guilt for Germany's direct responsibility for, for the Holocaust, right? So the reality is, is that expressions of solidarity have been shown quite rightly for the families of people who died in Israel, but there has been absolute radio silence from San Paoli and their supporters around what's been happening in Gaza. Now, the reason why that matters is not because of necessarily a whether that then makes San Paoli a left-wing club. It's about whether we have a shared value of anti-racism that we can agree upon. We are talking about ethnic cleansing and genocide, right? This is not something where you can just stand aside from it. So I think that is going to be a difficult one for people to resolve. It's become a test of what it means to be anti-racist. And I'm afraid that our sense is, is that particularly in Germany, not just FC San Pauli, but other clubs as well, have failed that challenge. I'm living here in Germany. I've been here for seven, eight years. I live in Berlin. And it's been very disconcerting for me and for a lot of my friends, a lot of whom are from abroad as well, to witness the, you know, the reaction uh, in Germany to what's going on, particularly because over, I think we've become sort of used to saying, looking at a lot of the other crazy things that are happening around the world politically in the last few years, uh, to saying, well, at least we live in Germany where things are reasonably tolerant and well-grounded by comparison. And so this is the first time, you know, this level of trouble in Israel-Palestine has, has broken out since I've been living here. And so it's the first time that I'm seeing this level of monolithic reaction on the part of all sides of the political debate in, in Germany. I didn't know particularly about the case of uh, St. Pauli, but certainly in, in the cultural sphere, what happens is that if you speak out, there is an immediate backlash. Anybody who has any sort of public role, if they speak out in favor of Palestine, they might well lose their job. They will have their projects cancelled. There have been countless examples in the past few weeks of exhibitions being cancelled, uh, plays being cancelled, 
prize givings being being cancelled famously at uh, Adriana Shubli, the Palestinian writer, her prize giving ceremony at the Frankfurt Book Fair was cancelled. Yeah, it's it's very disconcerting. Yeah, thanks, Fionn. I mean, there's obviously a huge amount that could be said about this. I think just to bring things back a little bit towards the book and towards like the intersection, I guess, of politics and football, you know, because the book does deal with a, a number of cases of how the game sort of intersects, I guess, with anti-colonial struggle, right? So Palestine is covered in a chapter in the book, and it feels especially sort of poignant reading that this week, which is what I've been doing. But, you know, looking at the significance of football in Palestine, um, how football has been used both to further, you know, the Zionist cause and that of building and gaining recognition for Palestinian national identity. You know, it's kind of interesting to note that the Palestinian Football Federation joined FIFA in 1998, I think, which made FIFA kind of perhaps inadvertently one of the first international organizations to recognize Palestinian independent statehood through that action. But, you know, Palestinian football clubs have been variously co-opted and repressed by Israel throughout its history. And football has been at the heart of the BDS campaign, which Kevin alluded to as well. It's been used as a form of resistance, as a way of surveilling and channeling the energies of would-be militants as well. So very much highly contested terrain. We could say a lot more about it, but I don't think we have the scope to do so here. I think one thing that we should talk about, and I'm aware of the fact that this is a panel of all men, but you know, one thing that we need to talk about is you know the women's game. Again, reading the history about women's football has been really interesting again in the English context and, and I know there's material on the sort of the French women's game as well you know it, we could probably come away with the impression of the last few years that um, the popularity of women's football is somehow new um, but you know obviously when you read the book you kind of realize if you didn't know already that it dates back almost as far as the men's game certainly back into the 19th century women playing football were I guess met by a great deal of hostility uh, at the time early on and then as I guess with both Britain and France, you know, during the First World War, with women sort of entering the industrial workforce, a lot of kind of women's football teams sort of emerged as well at the same time. And it's only kind of after that in the 20s that you see this kind of retrenchment and patriarchy sort of reasserting itself. The FA in England actually banned affiliated clubs from lending their pitches to women's teams, I think in 1921, and that that endured for 50 years, a sort of prohibition on this, you know, they weren't allowed to provide sort of refereeing support. They couldn't, you know, use the pitches. That was news to me. Um, as I say, I'm not very aware of the history of football prior to reading much of this book, but um, I guess were any of you aware of this history, the way that women, the women's game was effectively crushed by the FA? The history you described is accurate. And I think obviously the recent popularity of women's football on the back of the Women's World Cup has, has made a really big difference. But just to give you one example, of the imbalance between uh, men's and women's football. So our club, as is true for a number of community and fan-owned clubs, there is parity between the men's and women's teams. Admittedly, that's much easier for a team like ours where we don't pay our players. But if you take a team like Lewis FC, for instance, which is fan-owned, they made a commitment that both their men's and women's team will be paid the same amount. We've got a women's team, and it, uh, a couple of seasons ago, it had a very successful FA Cup run, we became the first team at our level to make it through to the third round of the Women's FA Cup. And we had this situation where we got drawn against Plymouth Argyle. Now, the, the distance between East London and Plymouth, it's about a 300 mile round trip, basically. 
And the cost of getting just just getting the team there, never mind any supporters, was more than the combined prize money that they won up to that stage. So it basically had to crowdfund to get their team to an FA Cup game. And it got loads of that in itself got loads of publicity. And in partly obviously because a club of our size playing against a well-known team like Plymouth Argyle, but also just because it was the longest trip of any any draw in that particular round of the Women's FA Cup, led to the FA agreeing to to revisit and change its um, the winning bonuses that you get for for games. And had it been in place now, getting to the third round would have netted the club £30,000, right, compared to the £1,500 they've got at that stage. Now, that's still completely different from the men's team. But the point being was, is that the pressure had come from women's football itself. And so it's not just the popularity, it's been the pressure that's come from demands within, that have also reflected wider demands to challenges against misogyny and sexism in a variety of different ways, um, which of course has really reached its zenith with the, the treatment of the, of the French Women's World Cup winning side in relation to their federation, which had obviously dragged on for ages anyway before it suddenly became world news. We are eventually going to reach a stage where more and more clubs are looking at seeing their men's and women's teams as being equal. And considering what you said, which is, you know, within my lifetime, women were not allowed to effectively play football properly at all. Um, that's incredible, really. It really is incredible. There are still battles to have. There's still clubs that insist on calling their teams the ladies' team, goodness sake. Um, but also just that that idea that those teams are properly resourced. One of the things that we have, as well as a women's team, is an open access team, a number of open access teams, actually, which is about encouraging people who may not have played football since they were at school, who were told that, oh, you know, you know there's no future for, for girls to come back and play football, and also to run training for children, particularly for young women to get involved in football, to encourage that idea that football is something that is important for women as well as it's not just a male sport. And in a lot of ways, it harks back to the discussion we were having before, that you can state that you're opposed to sexism and racism and homophobia, but it's what you do about it that is important. It's the actions that you take. I must admit, I enjoy going to watch the women's team as much as I do watching the men's team. And we get by far the largest number of, of supporters going within their league attending those games as well. And hopefully that's something that continues. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Andy, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this because obviously women's soccer is huge in the US. As a proportion of the people playing the game, actually, I mean, it was interesting to read in the book that I think half of the 8 million people that play soccer in the US are women, way higher than in you know Europe, for instance. Um, what do you ascribe the popularity of women's football to in the US? Uh, that's a good question. I, I I don't really know. But what I can say is that in, in recent years, women's soccer and women's basketball have become sort of political avatars in the culture war in, in different ways. One is Megan Rapino showing solidarity with various progressive causes and drawing a lot of right-wing ire for that reason as well as uh, similar things happening in the WNBA. Uh, the I think the Atlanta team is owned by one of the Republican Senate candidates, and they expressed that they were against her campaign. So certain sports and certain leagues are able to express themselves politically more than others. 
and women's sports in the U.S. has been able to do this. But another sort of strange element of that is that women's sports has become a talking point of the far right in the U.S., uh, claiming that transgender athletes are ruining women's sports and, you know, trans swimmers or, or wrestlers are making it difficult for cis women to compete. And, you know, there's a lot of examples that counteract that. But in general, women athletes, trans or cis or non-binary, tend to not care about this issue as much as Republican commentators. So, yeah, you just get this bizarre spectacle of, of a lot of legislation being passed protecting women's sports that has nothing to do with the athletes involved. And so, yeah, this is another case of if you look at, like, what the political dynamic around sports is, uh, an essential part of it has to be allowing the workers or the athletes, if they're not professional workers in the case of college sports or amateur sports, to manage the game themselves and to let them decide who gets to compete or who doesn't. And generally, I think the solutions that they come to tend to be in the more progressive dimension. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. Would anybody like to share anything either that's kind of in the book that you think is particularly sort of interesting or kind of resonated with you or any sort of shout outs you might want to give to our listeners, I guess, at this point? What we haven't really touched upon is the is the impact of money on all of this, <laughs> as it does with everything, right? So part of the reason why football has dramatically changed over the last 30 years is because of the influx of huge amounts of billionaire money into the game and which has largely had a negative impact on as a result because you now have these absolutely ludicrous sums of money being spent on players what it means is is that large numbers of clubs are always teetering on the point of bankruptcy and a number of teams have gone to the wall because they can no longer you know, further down the divisions because they can no longer survive, you know, on the gate money alone that they're in order to be able to pay the wages that will get them the promotions that they need. And that problem is not going away. So I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, I'm a representative of a non-league side that currently doesn't pay any salaries. But one day, we, if we are successful, we're going to be faced with that problem. What are we then going to do in a game which has been transformed from a essentially working class form of entertainment into a global business where if you don't have shed loads of cash then you are going to struggle and it has certainly been the case that one way forward has been for clubs to try and when they've gone almost to the wall to be rescued by their supporters but if you look at i mean i'm sure you're familiar with the apple tv documentary about wrexham and the introduction of two hollywood celebrities into buying that club that happens because fan-owned football is not a panacea. It doesn't solve everything. It still doesn't get around the basic problem that you're operating within a sport where money counts and which is only getting worse with huge amounts of Saudi money flowing into English football, for instance. I think there's a tendency in some of the discussions that I've had over the years about to, to kind of almost uh, romanticise the idea about fan-owned football. I mean, I think that the creation of a fan-owned club that we've gone through over the last five years has been successful, not just for the fact that it's fan-owned, but also because of the, the democratic structures that have been created within it, right? For instance, we abolished the position of chairman. We no longer have a board. We have a, 
a general organizing committee on a model that's borrowed from the Wobblies, from the IWW. And it remains an experiment in essentially in popular democracy. But at some point, we are not going to escape the obvious problem in that money is the way that we're going to be able to survive at a higher level. And I don't know what the answer to that is. And simply being fan-owned is not necessarily going to be the solution. The only thing that we can do is to grow, to get more people through our doors, get more people to join up as members. And I think that the important part of that work, and certainly it's the reason why the word community is in the name of the club, is that we'd much rather be building a space that is a community space within East London that brings people together rather than necessarily thinking that we've got to kind of, you know, bowl ahead and trying to get into, you know, a league, becoming a league club, because it's just not going to be sustainable. Sometimes football just needs to remain where it is. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Kevin. Well, I, I could just add that there is a lot in the book about everything you've just said, Kevin. There's a lot about the impact of money over the last few decades. And Mikhail wrote a postscript to the English edition, which is effectively an, an extra chapter, updating with what's happened over the past five years since it was published in French, about women's football, about Megan Rapinoe, also about the World Cups and about corruption in FIFA, uh, the World Cup in, in Russia and in Qatar. And what I find fascinating there is just how football always seems to be a sort of lightning rod for these political issues in, in so many different ways. Even since I finished the translation and it's gone to, to print, there are so many more examples of how politics always finds a way to come into football. So we had the whole scandal around Gary Lineker and the BBC um, Gary Lineker tweeting about the immigration policy of the British government. And then, of course, we had the Women's World Cup over the summer, and we had that you know great celebration being completely overshadowed by the award ceremony and the Luis Rubiales and Jenny Hermoso and so on. So the examples just keep piling up, and we can just keep adding you know, more chapters to this book. Yeah, I can close out by saying that one of the really great things about the book is locating it in the history as a folk game and like all sports really these are games that come from the people and are played by the people and the future of these games is that they will be played by the people for their own purposes and so one of the things i write about in the piece autonomy on the pitch which is for the new woodbine journal reservoir which is available through autonomy media it's called reservoir communion you can check that out is how they're building a new MLS stadium for New York City FC in Queens, but we're trying to build a soccer culture or like maintain or integrate into a soccer culture that has been always amateur, autonomous, non-professional, and resistant to any sorts of attempts to organize it or commodify it. And soccer has always been an amazing game because it's lent itself to being something that stays with the people, even as it becomes this massive economy that has these geopolitical implications. When it comes down to it, it's about people getting together and playing for the sake of playing. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. I think that's a really nice place to leave it. That was Fionn Petch, Kevin Blow and Andy Gitlitz on Radicals in Conversation. Once again, A People's History of Football, along with a number of our other books on football, are all 40% off for listeners of Radicals in Conversation. Simply browse the list at plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading and use the coupon podcast at the checkout. 
We'll be back soon with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>